This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 177. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, and today I have with me Matthew Marister. Good afternoon, Mr. Bowman. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Uh, too, it's been too long since we've had you on. Yeah, I forgot how to set up my microphone and do all that stuff. You had to re- relearn me. <laughs> well, we're glad to have you. <laughs> so, folks, welcome to today's episode. Today's episode is jam-packed with tons of news stories. There was just too much. We couldn't whittle it down. Uh, we're going to go through it as quick as we can, but I suspect we might be... It's definitely going to be an hour-long episode. (laughs) It's always an hour-long with us. Probably longer. (laughs) But uh, So I hope you're okay on time. (laughs) I'm I'm here for the long haul, Riley. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Today is our usual news episode, like I said. But first, it is brought to you today by Guardian Nation. And I want you to know, Matthew, I'm sitting here recording today's episode, and I'm cracking open. Here, listen to this. Oh, mm, what was that? You huffing gas or something? <laughs> yeah, I know this is silly, right? Okay, here we go. Hmm. Root beer. <sighs> That's what I'm guessing. Root beer. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I knew it. Uh, Henry Weinhardt's one of my favorite root beers. Pretty sweet, but uh, there's something about the aftertaste that just mm, I always want to come back for more but I was <laughs> what I was doing is I was cracking that open with my Griffin tool uh, pry bar that is uh, got the Guardian Nation logo on it that we just shipped this thing out in the last Guardian Nation box and uh, it's just a simple little pry tool it has a couple other little tools built into it um, you know there's ni- there's definitely nicer pry bars out there but this is a fun little thing that we just kind of threw in last minute into the Guardian Nation box and I think people are going to really enjoy so it's got a little bottle, bottle opener uh, like I said it's got the, the pry bar which I have already used by the way this thing is perfect if you sometimes if you have a uh, AR-15 where the mm-hmm. uh, that rear pin you know that you punch out to open up the receiver uh, you know sometimes if you got one that's pretty sticky this pry bar is perfect for just getting in there and getting us just a little getting that out a little bit further so you can easily open up your ar so anyway this is just one of the many benefits of being a guardian nation member and so i hope you go check it out today guardiannation.com find out today how you can be a part of the nation and qualify for next quarter's box that'll be loaded with other awesome great gear so there you go and we're thankful to have guardian nation which sponsors and makes this podcast possible. Now, being a Monday episode, we have a training tip for you. Matthew, why don't you uh, tell us, what are we going to talk about for a training tip? We are going to talk about the controversial, very controversial topic of conducting press checks. (laughs) Ooh, controversy. I love it. Yes. (laughs) So tell me about a press check. So basically, when we're talking about doing a press check, um, you know, you you have to know the condition of your firearm, not, you know, whether it's in good condition or bad condition, but the condition, is it loaded? Is it unloaded? And doing a press check is just 
a visual um, confirmation that you have around in the chamber. Right, right. Um, you know, for me, a press check is, is that for sure? You know, like that's the big piece, right? It's like, okay, is this thing actually loaded? Yep. I got around in there. Awesome. Ready to rock and roll. But I'm also taking that opportunity to double check my magazine, uh, double check, you know, the, the, you know, look the firearm over when I'm done completing the press check. Is it still in battery? You know, has it gone back mm-hmm. in the battery? Yep. Yep. That looks good. Okay. Magazine looks good. Magazine's topped off. You know, magazine back in the gun. Everything looks, you know, it, it's a, it's, it's an equipment check. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I agree. And this isn't a piece of equipment that you're going to use to rely upon to save your life. So make sure it's in the condition that you want it. And I can't tell you how many times I've had students in classes in defensive handgun courses where I, I you'll often hear me use the, the the phrase when we're done shooting a drill or, or something, uh, some sort of course of fire. And I'll say, when you're satisfied with the condition of your firearm, you know, go ahead and reholster or, or something along, you know, that line. And then we get to the next drill, you know, or whatever. And there's somebody on the line that they go, they draw their gun and nothing happens mm-hmm. <laughs> because somehow in the course of everything, they ended up with a unloaded gun, you know, an empty gun. Uh, they shot it dry and maybe for some reason the last round hold open, you know, the slide didn't lock back or something. And they went back to the holster and it's like, you know what? Make sure that sucker is in the condition that is satisfactory for you because you don't know when the next time is you're going to need it. And a press check, I think, is just just a, a small part of that. Yeah, I agree. It's it's really important. It's just I kind of look at it like you said, like an overall, um, you know, make sure your gear is good to go before you step off. You know, um, I, th- I I think it's important. I didn't I didn't realize until um, looking over the internet and you kind of pointed it out to me as well as how many people are anti-press check or think it, or it's become an issue. I don't know why it's become an issue. Right. Right. It's funny because you mentioned the words press check and you, you just open up a whole can of butt hurt and everyone starts dumping on you. Oh, what do you mean? You press check. You got to check your weapon. You know, I know the condition of my gun all the time. <laughs> my gun's always loaded. Right. And <laughs> that's something else. That's something else you always hear. Or, why not just use the loaded chamber indicator? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, you know, do what suits you. Uh, some of us, I guess, old timers, although I'm not that old. Uh, but I was brought up that way. You know, you do an equipment check before you stick in a holster, before you go out for the day, before you go on a shift or whatever it is that you do. And it, it, it's, it doesn't even take any effort, you know, especially the more you do this at practice. Like I, I've just done like 10 press checks. <laughs> And the time we've been talking about this, it's not that big a deal. Oh, wow. I see brass. Awesome. And yeah, I know I'm actually using a SIG P320 and I, there's a little opening, uh, you know, at the back of the chamber here, I can actually see if, if light is good. Oh, there's a shiny piece of brass in there. Oh, and the extractor doubles as a loaded chamber indicator, just like on the mm-hmm. modern, you know, Glocks. Oh, All I right. can feel that. You know what? But I've seen people fail with that too, where they, they think they can just feel that and that they will recognize that it's loaded or not. Do a test sometime and, and blindfold somebody and, and hand them a gun repeatedly a bunch of times, you know, sometimes loaded, sometimes not loaded, and say loaded or unloaded. And sometimes they'll get it wrong. So I don't trust that kind of crap. Um, and I know that's just me. So I don't get butt hurt about the fact that somebody doesn't press check. 
I just don't understand why people get butt hurt when someone says, I press check. Yeah. I, I mean, if there was a, I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm naive or I'm not hip or something, but I just, I can't think of any legitimate drawback of doing a press check. Um, if you do it right. I mean, if obviously if you're doing a press check wrong and pulling the slide back and ejecting rounds, that's probably a reason why you don't want to do press checks, but you're not conducting a press check at that point. You're, you know, ejecting rounds out of, out of your gun. So, I mean, if you do a press check the right way, I, I don't understand what the harm is in confirming, you know, and verifying. Oh, yeah, I know you keep your gun loaded all the time, but what's wrong with confirming before you step out of the house or, you know, I just, I, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't, I don't see any harm in it. Yep. Yeah. So true. I know, I know one thing that some guys will say is, well, you're, you run the risk that your gun won't be in battery. Um, okay. You know what? Part of an equipment check is, and this is how I do a press check, Matthew. I pull, I, you know, pick up the gun, whether it came out of my safe or maybe it's coming out of the holster, uh, for whatever reason, I don't know, but it's, yeah, I pick up the gun, right? And the first thing I do is remove the magazine because I take a little attention off the slide and everything too, right? So it makes doing the press mm-hmm. check a little bit easier. All right, so magazine out, and then I gr- I, I grasp over the top of the forward part of the slide. On the 320, it's really easy. It's got those forward serrations. Uh, even on my Glock though, where I don't have, you know, it's a it's a factory Glock, so it doesn't have any slide serrations on the front of the slide. I mean, they do have a model now, I guess they came out with earlier this year with that, man, they look ugly, but whatever. <laughs> so, um, you know, but, but even with a Glock, I, I've done this enough and I think a person can develop the strength or muscle memory or whatever it is, because it just becomes easy to do. I think where I just grip tightly, come back about a quarter of an inch, maybe a half inch see brass. Yep. Looks good. I, and usually when I release it, it goes all the way forward. Now, occasionally I have had a slide hang up. Guess what? I'm doing an equipment check. So I'm looking at the gun. And if you can't tell looking at your gun that it's what, you know in battery or out of battery, then you know what? Go back and learn you know a thing or two about guns and how your gun works and operates. Because you look at the slide, you look at the frame and, oh, wow, they match up. So my gun's back in battery, <laughs> right? If you have to, tap on the back of the slide. I'm trying to see if I can hang up this 320. There we go. Just got it to do it. All right. So it's out of battery. Oh, hey, I just pushed it forward. You know, funny how that works. And then I pick up the magazine, look it over. Yep. Mag mag looks good. Uh, You know, I could use my index finger and feel that top round, maybe press a little bit. And I could tell this thing's fully loaded. Um, That comes from years of, of practice and doing that repeatedly as well. I can generally tell when, when a mag is fully loaded. Um, I also have, uh, you know, round indicators on this magazine that shows me how many's in it. And it's this one, this particular mag is 15 rounds. This is a P320, um, compact. So it's fully loaded magazine back in. Now I'm going to the holster ready to go. Anyway, uh, even when I holster, when uh, I always, I have my thumb and I, this was something that I, I started developing when I carried um, my my Glock on duty. And because, you know, when you're working, you're constantly, well, I guess it depends on where you work, but you're constantly drawing out your gun on hot stops or, you know, searching, ve- you know, buildings and vehicle stops and things like that. And so for me, um, I always had my thumb applying forward pressure on the back of the slide 
as I reholstered to ensure that like, while I put it in the holster, it didn't actually holstering. It didn't push it out of battery. That was just one little thing that, and I still do it now. Um, and I think it's just out of habit of, you know, kind of draining that into my, into my reholstering. Yeah, actually, that's a really great point, you know, and kind of to that argument where some people will say, don't do, don't do press checks because you might end up with an out of battery gun. Well, every time you reholster a gun, you run the risk of putting it out of battery. And Mm -hmm. so what you just shared right there, I think is actually really valuable information. And I honestly do the same thing probably without even realizing it. Um, That's the one time I break my grip. You know, I, I, I have to have a holster where I can achieve a proper firing grip right from the get go. Right. But that's the one time where I'm where I don't have that that fully established grip is when I've already assessed the situation. The situation is safe, the scene is secure, you know, everything is done and over with. Okay, I'm good to go back to my holster now. And at that point, I just roll the thumb around to the back of the slide just like you do. Just, you know, I'm going back to the holster and I like to make sure that it stays in battery when I re holster. Yeah. So, Really good tip there, especially that's a, that's especially true on uh, leather holsters because mm-hmm, they're tight. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. So good stuff, man. Uh, darn those press checks! If our <laughs> conversation here today hurt your feelings, uh, uh, okay, sorry. <laughs> go go go! Cry to your mommy. <laughs> And, and you know what, if, if you have small hands like me or something and, um, doing the other, the, the press check the other way is, is difficult. Um, there's a di- couple different ways you can do it. I mean, you could, you know, kind of pull it back like you're actually, you know, chambering around, but I find that a lot of times people who try to do that end up pulling the slide back too far and ejecting around. Um, I find for me, it helps when I just kind of the same way you kind of, um, pull the slide back a little when you're going to take down your firearm to clean it um, with that like A-OK, um, make your hand like an A-OK sign with the circle and wrap that around the back of the slide, just just behind the beaver tail and just kind of squeeze and pull it back. And it normally, I mean, I can pull it back a quarter of an inch or half an inch or whatever um, so I can see brass and I can even get my finger up in there and feel if it was like low light or something I could feel around in there. Yep. Um, so I mean, I find that that's pretty simple to do. And plus it's a, if you use that technique to take your gun down, it's a, it's a, you're, it's the same movement. So, you know, it's nothing, you don't have to learn any, anything new. Well, I should say it's a, it's the same movement for guys like you that own Glocks. <laughs> right. Okay. I think Glock is pretty unique in, in, you know, that <laughs> having to do that. There, there's probably, probably a couple of other models out there that we, that do something similar. But, but the, you know, my 320, you, you, the takedown, you lock it all the way back to the rear, right? And then you rotate the lever. I think that's true on XDs. It's true on, on a lot of the modern striker fires. Right. But no, I, well, CZs, CZs, you kind of have to pull it back to. Oh, sure, and, and, sure. You know, yeah. so. Yep. You know, I, I definitely get what you're saying there. That, that actually makes a lot of sense. And I've done it that way too before. In fact, I've been doing it here while we've been talking, uh, you know, where you just, like you said, you kind of put the thumb underneath the beaver tail of the pistol, reach your index finger. Maybe I, I actually find it, it's a little bit easier for me. Uh, you know, I'll use my index and my middle finger. So two fingers on the mm-hmm. top. Hook, hook it on the rear sight and just squeeze and it pulls that slide back slightly. Now you mentioned one other thing that I'm glad you mentioned because I'd forgotten about it a little bit. Um, and that is doing a press check in the dark uh, where you come back and just 
just just far enough that you can reach reach a finger inside the chamber area there and feel the the round as it's sitting there uh, ready to go into the chamber. So that's a that's a great low light tip as well. Um, as far as using loading loaded loaded chamber indicators, um, you know what? Like I said earlier, do whatever the heck suits you. I don't give a crap. Just make sure you know your gun is in the condition that it needs to be for it to actually be useful to you in a dangerous situation. Right. And, and I think we should qualify a press check is checking to see if it, you know, if you have a round in the chamber. But if you're going to be picking up a, a gun that you have no idea what the condition is, you probably shouldn't do a press check. You should be clearing that, you know, if you want to clear the gun, you should be visually and physically che- checking the chamber to make sure it's empty. So I, I think, it, you know, it's it, two different things um, or you know, you, you'd use a press check differently than you would to clear a firearm or make sure it's clear. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Good, good thoughts, man. Well, let's jump to our first news story now. And this one comes to us from the hill, the hill.com title of the story is gun control group asks web hosting companies to shutter ghost gun sites. So the story goes that the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, this is the group that was founded by former uh, Representative Gabby Giffords from Arizona. And of course, she's famous because she was the uh, representative that was targeted by Jared Loeffner, uh, you know, the mass shooter that shot and killed, uh, what was it, eight people, no, seven people? I don't remember. It was, it was, it was a fair, you know, it was, it was a pretty bad shooting, obviously. Um and, uh, you know, I, I hate to criticize someone, Matthew, that mm-hmm. has been shot and has lived to tell about it. And now they've decided and, and already probably had beforehand because, I mean, she frankly is a registered Democrat, right? Uh, she likely towed the line uh, before and after, uh, you know, four more strict or stricter gun control laws. Uh, you know, but that aside. This is the the organization that has come to uh, web hosting sites Shopify and DreamHost and asked them to shut down GhostGunner.net and GhostGuns.com, which are two sites that sell parts and machines to build firearms known as ghost guns. And what we're talking about there, if you're not familiar, is that there there are sites you can buy what we call 80% receivers uh, or lowers. In the case of an AR-15, you can buy a lower receiver, which is the part per the ATF, per the federal government, that is, you know, the serialized, uh, so-called registered part. Uh, you know, that's that's the part that's serialized. That's what's recorded in gun manufacturer and gun dealer paperwork. Uh, you, but there, you can buy what they call an 80% lower or 80% receiver that they have these now for uh, Glock pistols and other, other types of guns as well. And so the idea is that an 80% one is 80% complete and you got to do about 20% work. And it's usually, I mean, it's, it's not like it's as simple as taking a knife to it and removing some material uh, typically, you know, and wow, you got a, a ready to go receiver and you just got to put some parts to it and you got a working gun. So usually you need some, some drills, uh, like a drill press, um, occasionally a router type tool, uh, a drill to drill through holes, uh, for pins and various things and parts. And so, you know, you've got to do some work, but the thing is 
they're legal only if you are buying it for yourself personally and you're the one that's making it. So there's nothing that regulates a person being able to build themselves a gun, a gun that complies with law. So it's not like you can't go build, uh, say, a uh, you can't build a fully automatic, for instance. You know, that's still that, that violates uh, NFA uh, and Title Three, you know, rules and, and regulations. Um, you can't build a short barreled rifle. That's got to be registered as well. But but you can build legal firearms for yourself. What's restricted is being able to sell or transfer that to someone else. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And so anyway, these two sites, ghostgunner.net, ghostguns.com, uh, completely legal, legit businesses, you know, they're operating within the bounds of the law. Now, if you want to change the law, that's fine. That's what I would call gun control. <laughs> and certainly I, I don't think the other side would have any problem with passing laws that would prohibit this sort of practice. But uh, in this case, Gabby Giffords is asking website hosting companies to stop allowing, you know, basically shut down the sites that, that uh, sell these parts. And uh, that's, you know, I love when we have government officials that say, you know, that try to interfere with private commercial you know, lawful business and say, because we don't like this, you need to do that. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, that's the whole argument about, you know, backdoor regulations of firearms. And when, you know, people will say, well, we're, you know, no one's trying to take away your guns or we just want to do common sense, this or that. It, it when you hear some, I mean, this is, this is straight from the lawyer um, of, you know, Gabby Gifford, who who wants to shut these things down. Um, it says um, they argue that the websites sell, quote, the sort of products that have already caused scores of senseless deaths and are likely to cause many more unless taken off the market. So they've made the determination what, you know, what you should be able to buy and are going around the law, the process of law about, you know, creating a law that would be if it is common sense and if it is so true that these are likely to cause more deaths then it should be you know easy to pass legislation for that but because they can't pass the legislation for it because it's not as cut and dry as that they go around a backdoor channel and saying okay well we're, we're going to hit them where they make their money and we won't allow them to sell on web pages and and that's kind of the the you know the shady thing that that isn't right that i don't think is I don't. I think that's what bothers gun owners and and people more than anything else. Now, I, I won't be surprised to see states or even the federal government at least attempt uh, to pass laws that now force regulation upon these incomplete receiver uh, parts uh, or or sites parts sites. Uh, I'm sure the gun control advocates would love to see gun control over all parts of guns, whereas now only serialized receivers are controlled and regulated. But uh, you know what California tried to do back in 2014 was pass a law to require serial numbers on unfinished receivers and all other firearms, including antique guns. Right, and right. Fortunately, that was actually vetoed by the governor. However, two years later, they passed a measure requiring anyone planning to build a homemade firearm to obtain a serial number from the state and pass a background check. So, you know, kind of a, 
unenforceable law that they passed, um, and they did pass it. So you know, here's what's interesting about this sort of thing is that in their minds, oh, phew, thank goodness we we avoided that tra- you know that travesty by passing this law that now requires people to get serialized these unfinished receivers, right? But yet it, it appears that what happened in Northern California, California a couple of weeks ago when we had that dude, you know, uh, shoot up, you know, uh, the school and, and shoot, you know, shoot and kill a number of people uh, that he followed this very process where he purchased. And I, I don't know why I didn't think about it last week. I think Jacob and I were talking about this last in last week's uh, news episode. Uh, and I suggested, well, maybe he just went over, you know, across state lines and bought a lower receiver. Uh, and then he ordered everything else online and was able to build his AR. Actually, it was two of them he built. But it appears that he uh, acquired 80% lowers and, and built these himself, uh, which was legal, except that according to this 2016 law, it was not. And so criminals or people intent on committing crime are not above following <laughs> the law where it comes to gun control. And they're going to acquire guns, however, whenever they're that, that you know that they're able to, or that they're going to, uh, especially if they're really intent on doing so and intent on causing harm. So you know, time and time again, we we find that gun control does not work in the way that it's sold to us as. Uh, it, it may have uh, there are certainly gun control measures that have effects, but it's not always the effect that uh, that that we're going for or that they say they're trying to achieve. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the, the argument, there's two different arguments. One is, is, you know, about gun control and what stops mass shootings and things like that. And the other is, is it legal or is it ethical to, you know, go back door and, and, and have websites stop selling perfectly legal items because you think that they are not, you know, safe, um, it, without any sort of checks and balances. I mean, it, I, it, I know there's, there's a slippery slope mentioned all the time and everything, but I mean, if, if you could do that with, with guns, why couldn't you do it with any other product and go back and say, you know, we don't want, we don't want you to sell this. And then the government steps in and says, but you can sell, you can sell this, but, and, and we're going to be the ones that sell it to you. You know, it, it just, it muddies the water. We have a free market, you know, and if something's legal, it should be legal to be purchased. And if they want to change a law, change a law I, I mean, or create a law that makes it, you know, illegal to purchase 80% lowers. But while they're legal, I think you should be able to legally sell them. They're, they're people that make a living off of, you know, that business. And until it's outlawed, they should be able to make a living. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Matthew. So, uh yeah, free market. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> so next story, uh, and and this one is, you know, kind of a, a similar thread. I mean, we just got done talking about this mass shooting in Northern California a little bit. Uh, we also a little more than a month ago, we know we had the uh, Las Vegas massacre, and so on guns.com, it's reported that hundreds of Las Vegas massacre victims sue the hotel. Uh, that is Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino and its parent company, uh, which I believe was uh, MGM. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then also they've uh, sued the organizers of the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival and the estate of the man who pulled the trigger, Stephen Paddock. 
So, uh, you know, major lawsuit here. And there's at least there's, they say there's as many as 450 victims that are included in this, uh, large lawsuit. Um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm frankly, I'm not surprised because in this day, uh, that's just what people do. Right. Uh, and certainly they, I think they have every bit of right to sue, uh, the shooter. And we know that he was well to do. So by all means, sue his estate and his estate should, should pay, uh, all these victims it should pay for their medical costs and bills. It should pay for disruption from work, uh, whatever, you know, counseling, et cetera, et cetera. As for suing the hotel that he shot from. Yeah, I don't, you know, I'm not surprised that they're doing it, but I just, I don't really understand when, when people do this, like, I don't know, Matthew, I'm curious to get your take, but I'm not sure what MGM Grand or Mandalay Bay uh, could have really done. You know, like, what did they do that caused this man right. to shoot up this this, far, this festival or allow him to shoot up the festival? And then again, the, the festival organization or organizers, um, yeah, I don't think that they could have really done anything to prevent this. So I'm not sure there's any liability here on these parties. Yeah, well, I saw an interview with um, with the attorney who's filing the um, the claims or the lawsuits, and basically what he was saying is they want they that because Mandalay Bay um, the the hotel hasn't been forthcoming with a lot of the information um, as far as you know how did how did um, Paddock access why did he have access to the back elevator and how did he get all this equipment and ammunition up there and why weren't like regular protocols as far as apparently the, the you know, standard is, you know, the, the rooms are supposed to be gone through, you know, you can hang up that do not disturb sign, but, uh, every, you know, if they haven't, uh, gone through the room every couple of days, they're supposed to, even if the do not disturb signs on there. They're supposed to go in and see the what's going on in the room and things like that. So I think what they're trying to do or what, he, from what I gathered from his statement was that they wanted to make, they wanted to see if those protocols were even there or if they were followed or, you know, how exactly all these things he was able to, you know, basically sit in there for a week and prep this whole, you know, uh, shooting post or shooting position. Um, and, you know, if those, I guess, procedures were followed, maybe they would have stumbled upon this. And then if the, you know, there's, and it, it, the problem is, is there's not a lot of information that's or credible or conflicting information that's come out. And so, you know, were the security guards, what time did they call it in and what did they do? And what was a procedure when they actually found out that there was a shooting? And so I think that's what it was as far as w- what I saw the interview, um, as far as the, you know, Mandalay Bay, as far as the the venue itself, I can only guess that they're going to say, you know, there weren't enough exits or there weren't, I don't know, um, y- there wasn't anything in place to help if there was a stage collapse or a fire or, you know, some sort of other emergency thing. And, you know, had there been some sort of procedure in effect that, you know, people wouldn't have been as many people wouldn't have been injured. I don't know. But yeah, that's I mean, it, it's it's a sad situation all around, um, especially when after everything settles and you start trying to point fingers and find out what what was done wrong or what 
could have been done better. You know, it's, it's never an easy, uh, conversation because, you know, it, it's, it's, you can't prevent, you, you can't prevent these things. You, you, you can't. Yeah. Especially this situation because it is so outside the norm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I, okay. So at the bottom of this article, it says, this is quoting the attorney, right? We want to focus on hotel and venue security, not turn this into a gun rights case. And, and he said that after suggesting that, you know, they weren't including companies like Slidefire, the manufacturer of bump stocks in this lawsuit because, and I find this interesting because many of his clients support the second amendment mm-hmm. and they don't, they, you know, they don't see this as a gun rights issue. They see it as a hotel and venue security issue. I, I can see things maybe a little bit more from the perspective of, uh, you know, trying to place blame on the hotel itself. Uh, but it, the the venue, I just, I, I look at it and it's like, how could you even possibly, before this event happened, how could you possibly foresee this, this sort of thing really happening the way it did? You know, right. I mean, there's definitely large venue security protocols and, and uh, there's guys out there that would, that could consult on stuff like this. And, you know, they're familiar with uh, planning security and consulting on large uh, events like Super Bowls and, and you know, football games and stuff like that, right? Baseball games or whatever, where, they they're they're looking at at the big picture but you know i look at a organization like the the harvest whatever it's called <laughs> uh harvest 90 or route 91 harvest music festival guys right like they they could not have foreseen this right right like it, it just is so outside of anything that you i mean if you were planning security for this event you're concerned about somebody getting inside the the event with weapons opening fire within that event and if they still were able to do so you know how you you would respond to that or maybe somebody just outside the event you know with probably on ground level uh, mm-hmm. just on the other side of a fence or a barrier or something and opening fire that way or someone planting a, a bomb and so you might have security walking the grounds walking around the perimeter of the grounds and looking for suspicious packages or or vehicles or backpacks or pressure cookers right and right. like you that's that's and that's all reasonable and i think for a lawsuit to succeed it's got to be you, you've got to be able to be reasonable and i think extending liability to this music festival organization because this guy shot from 400 500 yards away from 32nd floor of a hotel that you know that is on property these guys don't even have control over right i I really think that's a stretch yeah but certainly in america you're free to do whatever you want to do and sue whoever you want to so you know let the courts sort it out yeah. And you know what, as you were talking and as I was, you know, thinking about this, um, this incident, um, now obviously in this situation, since he was so far away and up on the 32nd floor, having, you know, a handgun on you wouldn't, wouldn't obviously have done anything, um, to stop this. But, you know, there's a lot of debate on should private property or, or you know, should owners of private property be able to ban you um, from carrying a, a concealed handgun, you know, or should it be criminal um, if you have a license? And maybe what this will bring up is, is you know, kind of a, a look at what are the, the, you know, if this venue were, let's say, to ban 
any firearms on the property or at the venue. And, you know, it wouldn't have been a shooting from 32nd floor, um, you know, a property away, but it would have been on the grounds and those people would have been injured. Would they have had a better, would they have had, you know, more standing in a lawsuit against the the Harvest Fest people because they were denied the right to, to you know, defend themselves? Um, so I think maybe in a, in a roundabout kind of way, this is, this could, you know, get people talking about, you know, what are the rights of people to be, to at least arm themselves? And if you're not going to allow them to arm themselves, do you share a responsibility of providing that safety, you know, X number of police officers or security or arm people there? Um, you know, cause that's a real, that's a real question. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that point for sure. You know, the, what I what I take away from the uh, Mandalay Bay shooting incident is that we will never look at large events and large event security the same way again. And you know, I, I've I've done a lot of thinking about this incident as far as like what could have been done. Uh, I mean, you could talk all you want about hotel security and that they should have gone into the room every couple of days and inspected it or whatever, which. I don't even know. Is that, is that even legal? I don't, this is not relevant to what I'm about to suggest, but if, if, you know, when, when you, my understanding is when I am renting a room, even for just a night, that that is like, that's my space. If I say stay out, <laughs> uh, there, there's pri- it's privacy, right? Like hotel staff can't just be, in my opinion, now maybe I'm wrong and maybe some attorney out there listening that's familiar with this type of, with this area of the law can, can, you know, email us at podcast at concealedcarry.com and, and tell me what's up. But I think about it and I'm like, how can a hotel, I mean, let's just suppose I'm, yeah, I have my do not disturb sign up for three days on my room. And I've done that, by the way, because <laughs> uh, I just like I prefer not having hotel staff coming into my room uh, when I am staying somewhere. And uh, unless I really need it, you know, maybe every couple of days, it's like, OK, room start to stink. <laughs> we'll take that sign off for, for our morning. But, but, you know, I mean, imagine that you've got that sign up. And you're in there and you're naked. Right. And somebody suddenly, just, you know, ignores the sign or, be, well, hotel policy and they just barge on in. Like, I, I just, I don't know that that's allowed. Well, but, there, uh, who knows? Yeah, I, I know we we ran into this a, a lot of times with hotels trying to evict um, tenants and things like that, um, either over noise complaints and stuff like that. And, and they do have the right to evict um, somebody who's renting a room. You are, you know, you do have certain um, expectations of privacy in that room, but eventually, um, you know, the, the the owner of that property can evict you. So basically they could allow the police to go in there and, and forcibly remove you or something like that. Um, so well, you but a, you're talking eviction, which is one right, thing, right? right? Like I, I, I stopped paying for my room and I refused to leave. Right. And, but you know, I'm just suggesting like general, I mean, is there a policy with hotels out there or something, you know, or, or a law that says that they are allowed or that they are required even to ignore a request to, n- to not disturb a room and go in, you know, well, we have to go in at least once every two or three days. Uh, I, you know, and even if that's not a law, if that was proposed as a law to prevent another Mandalay Bay, we must pass a, pass a law, <laughs> right. 
you know, like, cause you know what, what I'm, if I was going to shoot up another place like this again, I would just move all my stuff in, in a day. Right. And which I promise you in a hotel is not hard to do. And I know some people are freaking out going, they're like, how did they not notice him taking all this stuff into his room? <laughs> are you kidding me? Like, who gives a crap about like, I, I'll tell you what, in a few weeks, I'm going to be staying in a hotel with my family and uh, yeah, I've got four kids and my, and my wife and we haul a crap load of stuff into our hotel rooms. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean, like, so now is that going to be a thing like where they are watching that? I, I, I don't know, man. It's just I think w- going back to what I was suggesting about not looking at event security the same or 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 doing some things like what could have been done to prevent this? Well, I think not hosting it in a wide open uh, a space that's kind of in amongst a bunch of tall buildings in the area that really, it was like shooting fish in, you know, in a barrel. Exactly. Right. And that's, you know what? Don't do that again. Don't hold events like that. I'm sorry. I know some are out there saying, you know, we, we we can't give in. We can't allow the terrorists to win, you know, by, by us saying we're never going to go or, or hold events like this. Um, well, maybe just hold it in a stadium like most cities do with big concerts like this. Uh, you've got football stadiums and baseball stadiums where I've, I, I've got, you know, sports authority field right here in Denver where they do this sort of thing all the time. And that's a venue that you can really secure and control, uh, and, and you can't have somebody shoot down into the stadium from outside the stadium, you know? So uh, there, there's things that can be done is what I'm trying to get at, uh, or, or at least some things I think that has to be considered. What, what could you do specifically about this situation? I don't mean to be going way out in the weeds on this, but I think you'd have to have, I think you'd have to take the approach similar to if the president of the United States was coming into town and what the Secret Service would do and local law enforcement would do as far as all the inspections that they would be performing over a period of days as they prepared for the president to come, as they would scout around that entire area. And you know darn well the Secret Service is looking, well, he's going to be standing here. Who can see that position and from mm-hmm. where? And they would be looking. You know, try to think like all the of all the possibilities and what the worst person in the world would how they would think and well there's that tall building over there and somebody could be a sniper up on that building or in a window of that building and so we've got to be concerned with that so we might move you know this uh, large i don't know stage piece of equipment or something you know 20 feet this way so that it obscures that position you know it, it, it's it that's that's what you would have to do is look at things like that and take steps or perhaps put a, a sniper up on a building somewhere that's scouting and looking in all the windows of all these buildings with night, you know, night vision or uh, infrared equipment because <laughs> that's probably would what would be required to see into a dark room. Uh, and you know, it, it it's just I mean that's a little bit unreasonable. And you, talking about concert organizers, festival organi- organizers like this, uh, paying probably millions for a single event for the type of security and inspections and uh, all that stuff to be necessary to, to put that together and do all that due diligence. And so the easy solution I think is hold it in venues where you can control those variables so mm-hmm. much better. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Woo, I went way off there, but anyway, 
Let's move on. <laughs> Let's really move along now. Next story, uh, ZeroHedge.com reports that the second largest gun maker nears default as Americans buy fewer firearms post-Obama. Uh, this is an interesting story because of a story I have coming up here in just a second, but what, what, who is the second largest uh, gun maker in America, Matthew? I am going to guess just because I've read the article <laughs> that it's Remington. Oh, yeah. You, you guessed correctly. <laughs> so Remington Outdoor, the second largest U.S. gun maker, and I believe the largest is Ruger, uh, in case you're wondering, has suffered a rapid and sharp deterioration in sales and a similar drop in profits since January. Guess what? They're not alone, but some companies are faring better than others, unfortunately. Now, Remington is a publicly owned company. So uh, we we can see some of the numbers and things from Remington, and there's there's all kinds of charts and stuff posted on this site here showing their bond price and all this stuff, right? Um, and so, yeah, you know, like, yeah, that's just what has happened this year. We've seen it in our own business where sales have been kind of, it's been weird this year uh, for us as a business. Um, but Remington, when, when you're that big, you're going to feel it when things take a downturn like they have. And I'm sorry, but I, I think you, maybe they did. I don't know. But maybe we should have been looking forward a little bit more and going, hmm, gee, I wonder if Trump gets elected instead of Clinton, um, I wonder what might happen to the gun industry as far as sales go. And I, I think it, just about anybody could tell you, yeah, it's probably not going to be as awesome as it's been while we've had Obama and others, you know, in office that have been, you know, at times teasing the idea of, of adding more gun control. So, yeah, I, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm sad that this is what it's come to this year, but I don't know what to really say or do. And what we've seen though, Matthew, uh, I'm sure you saw this this last week with the uh, holiday sales and everything. I know I did is that manufacturers are really discounting firearms and ammunition uh, in an effort to, you know, prop up sales. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I, and I don't know, Remington, I, I, what I think is this stuff's kind of cyclical and um, it kind of a pendulum swings one way, then it swings the other way. Um, Remington is probably not unique in having their sales down, but at the same time, I don't think that they're, they've been, um, at least with their handgun sales or handgun division, uh, I don't think they've really been a as unique as in or as uh, I want to say competitive as far as um, coming up with new new firearms and and really hitting the the demographics the way that some of the other companies have. Um, you know, I, I think Ruger's done a really good job as far as uh, appealing to, you know, trying to get more women shooters and, and do things like that and coming up with different, um, I know, um, you know, um, Smith and Wesson, um, I mean, they're coming up with different platforms, um, rifles and, and ARs and things like that. Remington, it just seems like they haven't had that innovation and that could possibly also be a reason why their sales are down. I'm glad you brought that up because if you hadn't, I was going to, I look at it as, you know what, this is called economics, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, so the first answer to this piece is that, you know, demand has dropped. 
and that demand has dropped due to po- uh, politics in this country, right? Uh, and that's something that has affected everyone in this industry for the most part this year. Uh, then there's a second piece, which is you've got to make and sell things that people actually want. And I, I'm kind of with you, Matthew. I look at Remington and what their what their offerings are, and it's not it's not as uh, I feel like they've been really slow to mm-hmm. innovate. I feel yeah. like they've been really slow to to embrace certain segments of the market. Uh, you look at you know I mean just, just look at every other major gun manufacturer and where where they've what they've done the last ten years. You know how they've shifted. Uh, their product lineups and things, you know, take a look at Ruger, which is a classic, in my opinion, Ruger is a classic uh, firearm manufacturer uh, business, you know, in America, uh, been around, you know, a fair amount of time. Uh, they've, they, they've, they've become one of the most successful businesses in that segment. And if you look at where they were 20 years ago, as far as what they made and what they sold is very different from what they offer today. Exactly. Yep. You know, do they still have their, their hunting rifles and, and their classic line revolvers and yeah, they do, but they've evolved and they've shifted to follow what the market has demanded. And what we see the market more and more demanding in the last few years is guns, you know, handguns that are geared and oriented more towards self-defense and tactical use. And the same is true with rifles and, and particularly carbines, meaning Ruger has come out and built some pretty nice ARs and similar platform uh, rifles. And then you've got Remington that's like, no, oh, we still make some, you know, really great hunting rifles. And, oh, we got the Remington 870. It's yeah. a pretty nice shotgun. <laughs> uh, you know, and, 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 and then they finally, finally, they start sort of embracing, well, we've, we now have, we're, we're now getting back into the business of, building handguns and they had a major flop in the r51 part one (laughs) now the the second edition of that appears to be better and i have yet to get my hands on it and actually fire live rounds but from what i've heard from friends and others that are in the know that it appears that they've they've addressed and fixed that gun that gun's kind of a cool gun i think if it works it, it's pretty interesting, and it it, it it it's it's in that right segment. I think you know it's a it's a concealable, compact uh, nine millimeter uh, firearm, semi-automatic. Hey, great, awesome! They've got their little RM three eighty, which is uh, you know uh, kind of like an LCP size, maybe a touch bigger uh, three eighty. Cool, awesome, that's great. But they were so slow getting to that point. Yeah. And, now, and they botched it when they came out too. Yeah. So And now they got the, the full size nine uh, uh, millimeter now, which I, I, I've looked at and I've held and you know what? There's some mixed reviews on that. There's some guys that seem to really love it and some guys that seem to really not like it. And I'm kind of somewhere in the middle where there's some things about it I think are, are cool and things that I really think they've missed the mark on uh, with that gun. And, and as part of that I think is they went right to the let's make this the price point on this thing really low, which tells you you know that their margin on that has got to be really small, and and so if you don't really nail that product, uh, like you, you can't just make something cheap and expect it to fly off the shelves. It's got to be good too, especially when we're talking about right. guns, right? And I just don't mm-hmm. think they quite hit the mark with that gun. Uh, we're talking about the RP9, by the way. Uh, and, and and so the price point alone isn't going to sell that in the volume that you need to to be profitable. So 
now look take take a look at ARs. Now they've been building ARs for some time now, but they don't build the ARs that people really want. They've been more focused on a we're building hunting ARs. Or throw a little camo pattern on that, you know, give you a five round magazine so it's compatible with most state laws, and whammo, we got an AR. Mm-hmm. Well, that's fine, but give me, you know, build me a, a freaking sweet uh, tactical, you know, uh, self defense oriented AR. Give me a give me a proper patrol carbine for those law enforcement officers out there that are, you know, maybe they're hunters as well and they are loyal to the Remington brand. We'll build something for those guys. That that if their department allows them to uh, to to you know choose their own carbine rifle, well, bam, you know, build it. Right. Which Ruger has done, Sig Sauer has done, all these other guys out there have done, and Remington is still stuck in the hunting rifles and shotguns. Yeah, and if that's your if that's what you're gonna you know if that's your gig and that's what you do well, then don't venture out on these other things because it ruins your brand. You know, if yeah. you, if you're, you make good hunting rifles, make good hunting rifles. You don't, it, it does, just because you make good hunting rifles doesn't mean you make good self-defense handguns. And when you make a flop, you know, on that aspect, no one's going to come back crawling back to buy, you know, self-defense handguns. They might buy a, a hunting rifle because you, you've shown a proven track record in there. But, you know, I, so I agree with you. I mean, I think there's just some, some economics and, in uh, target market research that they missed out on. Yeah. Well, and, and to your point, which is a very good point, uh, their strength for a long time has been hunting rifles and, well, shotguns, the 870. You know, the Versamax is a fine semi-automatic uh, gas-driven uh, uh, shotgun. Uh, really nice gun, by the way. I, I Bam, I think they nail it with their classic, you know, pump actions. I think they nail it with the Versamax in a lot of respects. Their set model seven hundred hunting rifles are they're, they're they're great rifles. I suspect that their sales on a lot of that has been pretty uh, consistent because mm-hmm. when we have these big peaks in the market, they're more geared around guns that people are worried about being outlawed, and that's not the case with you know it, we're not worried about hunting rifles or even shotguns to a large degree. Um, so you know what they should probably try to innovate in some new way with uh with rifles now they've tried to come out you know they've they've they've, they've got their uh kind of chassis built you know uh hunt you know model 700 rifles now they've got this uh, this model 700 uh, magpole edition you know it's got a nice magpole chassis style stock uh hey that's cool you know what push it push push that even further uh and frankly i think we're i, I really do think where they're missing a how a, a big in a big way, and I don't think it'd be hard for them to execute on, would be on, in the more tactical sphere, me- meaning like AR-type rifles. But anyway, I don't mean to keep beating it. Um, <laughs> it it's just interesting because, uh, you know, we see the story, and um, it prompts me to to really dig into the, the whys and the hows, and, and Remington's a great case study in that regard uh, because they are, I think, a great company. They've been around a long time, but just because you're huge and you've been around a long time doesn't mean you're going to be successful. So anyway, uh, next story. And I'm jumping over one here, Matthew. Let's go right to this liberal gun club. Oh, perfect. <laughs> uh, this video is, I, I just really got a kick out of this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And it, and I I had to talk about this today because recently on the podcast uh, we kind of 
brought this up where, and I, I had kind of a little monologue uh, talking about that, that I'm pleased to see that there are gun owners of all shapes and sizes, you know, in all political backgrounds. Uh, and we seem to be seeing more and more of that. And I think for most people, uh, if they are, um, if they lean to the left politically, but they are, but they lean to the right, you know, traditionally where it comes to the second amendment, uh, it's typically a little more focused as of recently around self-defense mm-hmm. uh, because they, they, they see, you know, the common sense side of it of, I have a gun to protect myself. You know, it's, it's, it's gone above and beyond, you know, where we were in the eighties or seventies where the argument was all about, well, the second amendment is for, you know, hunting. Um, no, now we see people on all sides seeing the self-defense aspect, understanding that, and they somehow are able to, you know, reconcile. It, it doesn't work for me in my brain, and that's okay. Uh, but they're somehow able to reconcile being very much pro Second Amendment, but being kind of opposite from most people, probably on everything else. Uh, and that's cool because I think the Second Amendment can be the great unifier, right? Yeah, I think it, yeah, it, it transcends. I think politics. Your right of self preservation really is a core of humanity. And it doesn't matter what you believe in as far as, you know, the, the, you know, government's power over you, you're, everybody has a desire to protect themselves. And when it boils down to that, if you look at the second amendment, it's kind of hard to argue with it. Um, and yeah, I, I'm told, I, I totally agree. I, I, I responded to one of the uh, a comment on one of the posts that we had a while back and he was, uh, the, the person wrote in and said, you know, he was a, he's a Democrat or he was a liberal. Um, and you know, he's, he's bought his first gun and things like that. And, you know, I responded and I thought it was really cool that he actually, uh, came on and, and, you know, posted because, you know, while, while most people think gun owners are all Republicans, they're not, they're, it's, it's, it's not, you know, uh, exclusive Republican thing or conservative thing. So, um, yeah, I, I thought the, I thought the video was pretty interesting as well. I, I chuckled at a couple of different things and different, uh, things, but yeah, definitely, uh, you, you know, and it's interesting because, uh, you know, this video, by the way, we haven't done a very good job of, uh, introducing what the, <laughs> you know, context of this video is and this is a, it's following this group called the liberal gun club and so they're very open you know like the first thing you see is some lady she's standing for the camera and she's like i voted for hillary clinton and i love the second amendment or something like that right and it's like okay you know i i don't know how you do that because <laughs> i look at it like well we're i'm pretty sure that Hillary, if Hillary Clinton was our president right now, the conversation on gun control would be very different right now. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so it, to me, it just isn't congruent and, and it's hard for me to reconcile how you would do that. And I, I totally get, by the way, people being upset and frustrated with and not liking Donald Trump. You know, not, you know, I, I'm willing to admit I voted for him. Be, and it's because to me, the alternative was not was not good. <laughs> As far as, you know, if you want to call me a single issue voter, uh, which I'm certainly not, uh, I, I, my 
my pol- politics and my beliefs are much, much deeper than that. But the Second Amendment is a huge one for me because for me, I see it as protecting a lot of my other beliefs and my other rights. And uh, that that's really a, a, a deep part of, of me. But and so, you know, when it came to to Trump, I mean, it, it, it wasn't just the gun issue I was maybe casting that vote for, but that was a big piece of it mm-hmm. because it just would be a totally different country right now, a totally different world. You know, frankly, <laughs> our last story, uh, Remington would be doing a lot better right now, <laughs> most likely if, if Clinton had one. Uh, but we would be talking right now with, in light of these recent shootings. I guarantee you the conversation would be, we got to ban, we got to reinstate the assault weapons ban now. And uh, that, that would be, and, and that, that already exists, but we have this guy at the, at the helm Donald Trump, even that is at least somewhat of a barrier to that going too far, and so anyway, that's how the video starts out. Uh, and, and I probably would definitely disagree with some stances that some of these folks might have, but I I don't care. I think it's great that we have people on all sides of the political spectrum from all background of of races and sex, you know, gender, whatever, you know there's there's lgbtq whatever groups that are pro-gun groups that you make it a point to say hey we're i'm gay and i am pro-gun you know and like bravo like that that's awesome because like you just said self-preservation and self-defense should be an issue that it, it affects everyone and let's band together and let's really stand up for our rights because we will be much stronger for it, especially when we have people from all kinds of different backgrounds banding together on that one issue. We stand a much greater chance of solidifying our right to keep and bear rights in this country. Mm-hmm. Anyway, go go see the as always in the with the news stories each week, uh, the links for these stories. And in this case, there's not really a, a story attached, but it's a link to the video on ABC News. Uh, to this uh, video about the Liberal Gun Club, which is based in uh, this particular one is based in California, Shocker. which no surprise there. You know, it's a more liberal or left leaning state. And, uh, you know, I guess you're more likely to to see something like this prop up in, in, a, in a state like California. Although I do know that uh, there's a lot of non-liberals in California, too. And I, I, I pray for you out there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um Speaking of which, I was surprised watching the video that they say they've got 7,500 members nationwide yeah. in the Liberal Gun Club. That's that's actually pretty impressive. Yeah, I, I think it's cool. I mean, kudos, you know. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Uh, so there's another story here, and there's a very specific reason as to why I've included this one. Uh, and this is that a Las Vegas police officer shoots man holding wife at gunpoint. This also has a video. Uh, go watch it. I think there's a lot of things that can be learned from this. Uh, good things that this officer does, and also maybe some things he, he could have done better, perhaps, too. But uh, did you watch the video, Matthew? I did, yeah. Can, can uh, you walk us through kind of how it played out, what happened? Yeah, it looks like, you know, they get a call probably of a domestic problem. I don't, I, it, doesn't see, it, it doesn't seem like it because when the officer gets uh, unseen, I don't know if he immediately knows it 
the person has a gun because he's asking, you know, people that are running from, from the area, Hey, what does he have in his hand? But basically he gets on scene and, uh, it's outside of maybe a seven 11. I can't, I forget what, it, what type of store, but it's like a, a little strips store, like a seven 11. And there's two, uh, man and a woman outside. He gets there. Um, and they're having a, he, the, the man is holding a woman, um, and apparently has a gun. And they're screaming back and forth and the officer's trying to um, get the woman. He, he goes back and forth telling the guy to get on the ground and the woman to come towards him, um, which obviously she can't do because a man is holding her. Um, and so um, eventually, you know, tactics aside and everything, eventually he, uh, another officer arrives on scene and uh, they engage the the guy with the gun, shoot him. He drops to the ground, drops the gun, and the woman is able to get free. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the, the long and short of, uh, what happened. Right. There, there is one thing, you know, in that this woman, uh, I guess the wife of the, the, the man, uh, that they shot, uh, she's also hit in the, uh, altercation, uh, you know, I, by, by an officer's bullet, it appears. Uh, and that's, that's why I, felt like I had to include this story uh, because this is something that we, we, we touch on from time to time and we talk about, uh, but it's not something that you really see a good example like this play out, especially on video, where you talk about being aware of your surroundings, but also being aware of your target and what might happen if you miss that target or even if you have a through and through. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, where you shoot that target and maybe for whatever reason that bullet over penetrates and goes through. And, you know, in other words, this is a reality that you must be aware of and you must accept. And you've got to take steps to try to um, keep it from being an issue. And so, it, I mean, what we, what we know is we have two officers. I mean, initially, we just see the one officer and then there's a second officer that, that responds and he, he shows up and he's kind of to the left of the first officer. So he's got a different uh, perspective. And to me, what it appears, and it's a little unclear from the video, it's a little unclear from the actual news story, but it appears to me that the second officer fires and either misses or one of those bullets goes through the suspect and strikes the woman, right? Yeah, and, I watched it again and it, I, I would agree. It doesn't look like the, the, the officer who first arrives is the one who hits her. Right. And and so why that's so key is, you know, I I think that second officer has got to be, you know, I understand why he was where he was. I mean, tactically, he's, he's very, it's, it's a very sound approach because he and this first officer are, I mean, they, they've got really strong tactical advantage with this one dude. I mean, the one dude can't hit both of them at the same time or very quickly. Um, they're not in each other's line of fire. That's really key. I mean, you, you know how important that is. And, you know, anytime you're working with a, with a buddy or working with a, a, a partner, you know, officer, yeah. uh, one of you is going to be contacting. The other guy is focused primarily on cover and, yep. you know, getting that, not getting in the line of fire with your buddy or anybody else. That's really key. So, I mean, tactically, they're, they're pretty sound here. And there's a vehicle that kind of, kind of comes into play. Um, I wonder a little bit about the officer's use of that vehicle as cover. 
Um, I understand, I think, why the first officer sort of moves away from that, moves to the right. Um, I think he was really concerned about, you know, not having that woman be in the line of fire. Um, but that second officer, you know, that that was, it's just something you really got to be thinking about. You got to be analyzing. You got to be aware of uh, that you might consider changing your angles so that you limit the risk uh, that might, you know, be placed upon that innocent uh, bystander. Um, so good example, I think, like I said, to show what can happen when things go wrong. You know, it appears the woman is was fine. Uh, she, did, she did have to be transported to the hospital. Um, you know, I believe she was struck somewhere in her abdomen. You know, that could have been serious, but it appears that, you know, she's going to pull through it. And, and at the end of the day, she's alive. Right. Uh, because of the actions of these officers, but it, you know, just some lessons that, to be learned. And, and you know what, one other thing that I think is important, we often, you know, and especially in classes and things like that, um, I always hear people talk about, well, what if I have to take a, what if there's a hostage and I have to take a hostage, there's a hostage situation, I have to take a headshot or something. And I try to tell people that in reality, a hostage situation is not as simple as just, you know, putting up a, a target and then having something a little bit behind it. And, you know, you're shooting that, that small target without shooting, you know, the target that's in front. It's not, it's not like that because it's a dynamic situation and taking a hostage shot with a handgun it, it, at any distance is probably much more difficult than the average above average person is is going to be able to, to take without injuring that person yeah. i mean or, or in, injuring you know um the 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 person who's being held hostage it's just such a difficult shot to make and you know even if you are able to hit the hostage um taker you know the the chances of you debilitating or immobilizing that person instantaneously and them not being able to pull the trigger and harm the hostage after that are very remote. I mean, even with a, you know, with a handgun, you got to get a perfectly placed shot. So, you know, this is the reality of that hostage shot, you know, and it's not as easy as, as people, people think. Yeah. And, and, and you know what, as I'm looking at the picture, um, if you notice what they're standing in front of it, I, I believe it's, um, those refilled propane tanks. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I don't, I, I don't know. So that's, that's probably not a great backdrop. I mean, you, you don't have a, you know, a, a choice, but pro it, it adds, it, you know, it, it, all these things kind of factor in it. And, it, and when you start bringing it all into, in, into effect and, and, and weighing in on you, it, it's a lot to, you know, Hey, do I take this shot? There's a bunch of propane tanks behind him. There's a hostage. It's probably, it probably couldn't get any, you know, more, more difficult to make that shot, but you know, they decided to take the shot. They, the risk outweighed the reward, I guess, you know, yep. type thing. So great observations. So we're going to actually take a break right there and realizing that this episode is as long as it is, we're going to break this up into <laughs> part one and part two and part two will be released tomorrow. So yeah, oh, cool. that, that, that'll be fun, right? <laughs> Sorry to make some of you yeah, two wait days on you. that, but uh so what, what we have left, by the way, and so I, I'm going to leave it here because I think it's a really good place to, to stop and leave it. Uh, we still have four justified stories to cover. And all four of these occurred within the last week. 
And they are fantastic stories. And I'm really looking forward to sharing those with you, our listeners. But before that, we have this other story from, it's, it's written, it's, it appears on NBCNews.com. Now, I'm, I know some of our listeners are going, red flag, red flag, red flag. <laughs> uh, but this is written by Charles Clymer, uh, who, who writes, this is the title, I'm an Army veteran and gun owner. The good guy with a gun theory is a myth. And I've got a lot of thoughts about this uh, this story, <laughs> the, this article. Uh, and by the way, it ties really well in with one of our justified stories as well. And so th- there's, there's your tease. I hope that you'll come back tomorrow and listen to the conclusion of today's episode. Uh, so today will be episode 177, part A, and tomorrow will be 177, <laughs> part B. But anyway... Army veteran and gun owner says the good guy with a gun theory is a myth. I'm not buying it. And then we've got stories, justified stories like uh, business owner uses AK-47 in exchange of gunfire with burglars. Uh, here's a good one. Auto shop employees credited with taking down accused Rockledge gunman. Uh, teen shot while attempting to rob retired Marine at North Harris County home. And here's another justified story. I thought I was going to die. Shoppers in terror as off-duty officer kills armed man at Lenexa, Kansas, Costco. So seriously, loads of amazing content and stories, uh, justified stories here. So stay tuned till tomorrow for all of that uh, coming your way. But uh, a reminder that today's episode is brought to you by First Guardian Nation. And I hope that you'll check out guardiannation.com. And then today's other sponsor is PigLube. And PigLube was actually featured as one of our uh, products during our Black Friday sale, which is still going on as of now. This is Monday, November 27th. And at tonight at midnight mountain time, our Black Friday slash Cyber Monday weekend sale comes to an end. So you got just a few hours to to get in, you know, get on there uh, on the site. You Guardian Nation members get access to the best prices and discounts. And uh, Pig Lube, we had a Pig Lube combo kit. That was the first thing that just flew off the shelves, just sold out almost within minutes. Uh, so uh, really great stuff. I, I love Pig Lube. Uh, it's my favorite lube now that I use on all my guns. I use on my handguns. I use on my ARs. I use on my shotguns. Uh, and it really, really, really works. And so go find... Uh, Check out Pig Lube, concealedcarry.com forward slash pig lube. And they have, we have the scented and unscented varieties. Uh, the scented has just a, just a hint of a bacon grease smell. So those of you that really love bacon, mm-hmm. you're going to love the scented pig lube. But if you're a hunter and you're out hunting and you're concerned about, uh, you know, smells and odors that might either scare away game or maybe attract certain game you don't want <laughs> like bears. <laughs> uh, there's an unscented variety as well. So concealedcarry.com forward slash pig lube, go check it out. And so with that, we're going to sign off. Uh, Matthew, any last words? Do I get to come back for the next episode? No. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. I'll see you in another year. Of course. Of course. <laughs> So we'll, we'll look forward to, to chatting with you again in, in uh, tomorrow's episode. Uh, and so uh, a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everyone. 
A reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.